0: Bookstack with Richard Aldous, the books and ideas podcast brought to you by AmericanPurpose.com. Don't forget to check our website for all the latest commentary and analysis. And it's where you can find details of our new membership model. Simply go to AmericanPurpose.com forward slash join. Coming up on the show today, Francesca Tripodi, assistant professor at the University of North Carolina, Chapel Hill, and author of the new book, The Propagandist's Playbook, How Conservative Elites Manipulate Search and Threaten Democracy. Francesca, welcome to Bookstack.
1: I appreciate you having me here today. Thank you for inviting me. Uh,
0: congratulations on the book. So what is The Propagandist's Playbook?
1: Great. So the point of the book is essentially to expose the seven tactics that politicians and pundits regularly rely on in order to resonate their messaging and amplify what they're trying to say, both on and offline.
0: And when you started the project, you say at the beginning that your aim was actually to find out how conservative voters sought out the information that they could trust. But as you went along, the project changed and it took you into the world of conspiracy theories and, and and media manipulation.
1: Absolutely. So when the research project first began, it was in reaction to what I saw as a very dominant narrative coming out of the election of Donald Trump, which seemed to imply that... Sites like Facebook had been infiltrated by Russian bots. And so because of all this disinformation, voters had been tricked into voting for him. And to me, that didn't really seem to resonate with me as a sociologist and as an audience ethnographer. I felt that that really ripped a sense of agency from people who had genuinely voted for him in 2016 and then again, uh, which you saw in 2020. And so initially... I sought out just two Republican groups, a women's group and a college group. And what I was trying to do was make sense of the news and information that they came to trust and rely on. And then I used a process of media immersion. So I took those sources that they gave to me. They said, well, here's the news XYZ that I go to when I'm looking for news. And I subscribed to those podcasts. I went to those YouTube channels. I listened to their radio programming. And I watched them on television. And I read a lot of stuff as well um, being shared online. And it was through this deep media immersion that I began to see there are really parallel information systems that are floating <laughs> both on and offline. And some of the information being spread in these in these networks um, is is harmless, right? It's there to kind of activate or or resonate with conservative voters. But some of it was definitely, Um, more surprising than I I thought was going to be. It definitely advanced a lot of conspiratorial logic. Uh, We saw this with the 2020 presidential election. Um, And also, uh, at the same time, I was doing research in these groups that were identified as very mainstream groups. I witnessed Very extreme violence at the Unite the Right rally that took place in Charlottesville in 2017.
0: Yeah, I mean, you use the word immersion there. It it, it is one of the things that comes out of this book that, in in some ways, we often think that we ourselves are somehow exempt from algorithm-driven news, information, advertising, and so on. But as 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 you say later in the book, there's no such thing as a as a neutral search. And uh, again, you say in the book that this this begins to affect your own mindset as you're doing the research, that that way in ways that really did take you by surprise.
1: Absolutely. And I think this happened to me a couple of times. you know, I write about it in the book when uh, Paul Manafort ended up being indicted for criminal charges and there was this lead up to someone's being indicted, someone's being indicted. Uh, I genuinely thought at some point that it might be, uh, Hillary Clinton, whom I had voted for in the 2016, and have a conversation with your
0: husband about exactly <laughs> yes, that. Yes, yes. Yeah.
1: I was saying, you know, is this could this be what's happening? Um, and he was so surprised that I would even kind of consider that. But what. What I don't think people realize is that was that was such a dominant narrative going on inside that information ecosystem at the time, really to deflect from any kind of wrongdoing that Manafort ultimately engaged in, um, because he was charged with these crimes. And so I think it's important to recognize that um, by creating these these other stories in, a, in an attempt to pivot, um, it really does distract the voting public from what what could be much more important information, especially when it comes to determining who they might want to vote for in an election. The second time this happened was after my research project had been complete. When I was doing my, my media immersion, I heard a lot about this person called Nellie Orr. And when I would talk to people about this person, if they were progressive voters, they had no idea what I was talking about. And then months later, as I was driving into work, listening to the impeachment hearings, um, then Congressman uh, Nunez used his time at the uh, during, during his opening remarks um, to say, we really shouldn't be paying attention to this. We should be paying attention to Nellie Orr. And I was just so shocked, because up and until that point, um, I honestly didn't think anyone would even recognize what that what that meant. I thought maybe I was having some sort of a brain lapse um, while I was driving because I hadn't heard that phrase in so long uh, outside of that information environment. And, it,
0: I mean, it's, it's interesting. I mean, you, you talk there about uh, some of the democratic process that is involved here. And, and I guess that's one of the underlying themes of the book, that we see how uh, democracy is changed. Uh, democracy itself it develops and is changed by the media environment of the times.
1: Sure. So I think, you know, oftentimes we think of democracy as just, everybody gets the chance to participate in a voting in a voting space without recognizing that that truth has been shaped in many ways in the United States since the very foundation of us forming our country and <laughs> and instilling the ability to vote. you know not everyone has been able to vote. Uh, they only just recently ratified um, you know kind of women's equal ability to vote. Uh, in in the state of Virginia, so I think we kind of take take for granted um, this idea that that democracy is kind of a a given, um, even in a country that is designed around these democratic processes.
0: Now, of course, there's historically there's all it's always been the case that there's been media manipulation. I've just been reading Andrew Roberts' new biography of Lord Rothermere, uh, mm. who was one of the classic uh, kind of press barons. But mm-hmm. I wonder how is the twenty first century environment different? What's specific uh, about what's happening now?
1: Sure. So, for me, what I actually do in my book is historicize this practice. Um, the idea of creating. New keywords and phrases in order to change the conversation is a political strategy that's been around forever right <laughs> for as long, as long as politics has been around what's different is that in our information environment we are much more reliant on search engines for finding news and information that we trust and so many of us don't recognize that these key words that we put in to begin with really drive our returns in in very meaningful ways that we might not be knowledgeable about And so part of my book is kind of breaking down this idea of, it's different if you're just going to a radio station. You might know ahead of time that this radio station or this podcast or this this newspaper, they lean left or they lean right. But many of us don't really recognize that we take that same leaning with us to the search bar. And so if we put in very specific keywords around a concept, that's going to shape the kind of information that's returned to us. And so we need to be a bit more mindful of that practice going into it. And then the other thing I talk about in my book when it comes to why this media manipulation strategy is different is I think that sense of exploration is really activated when people go out and do their research themselves. And so when people see things that don't really look right to them on Facebook or on Twitter, and they go to search engines, and they say, "Hmm, I'm going to search for more information or do my own research on this. If they just take those same words and phrases that they saw on social media, they are likely going to receive the exact same information that they saw on those social media sites. And this might unintentionally allow people to walk away with really unsubstantiated claims or kind of double down on mis- and disinformation in a way that wasn't the case when they were simply reading about something or hearing something.
0: Tell us a bit more about the research that you did. It it took place kind of in and around the 2017 governor's race in Virginia. As you say, you chose these two groups. Um, Tell us a bit more about them and why you made those choices.
1: Absolutely. So ethnography is a way of kind of embedding yourself into organizations um, in order to really understand what the culture is of the groups that you're studying. And for me, I thought that a lot of the narratives surrounding Trump voters kind of portrayed them as maybe not that intelligent or like they had been tricked into voting for somebody. And I really wanted to understand how do people with college educations, um, how do people, uh, specifically women, I think there is not a lot of really good research out there on conservative women. I really wanted to understand how dynamics of class and gender impact the kinds of information people trust. And so I reached out to these groups. I reached out to the head of each of these groups. You know, I told them, I'm a researcher. I am trying to understand how people make sense of the news and information environment. Um, at the time, I was hoping to also do research in uh, kind of a purple state, a blue state, and a red state. But <laughs> uh, ethnography is much more time and monetarily. Um, <laughs> it, it requires much more time and much more money than I than I uh, than I had, unfortunately. And so um, I ended up focusing really on the kind of the purpleness of Virginia. And uh, this governor's race that was happening, it was kind of like one of the very first electoral races to take place right after the election of Trump. And so this one was a really important landscape because people were trying to see, well, what impact did Trump's win? make um, in these other states as well. Um, And this really played out, especially on the Republican side, because you had Corey Stewart and Ed Gillespie running against each other in the primary when my research started, uh, who were very different in the way that they were framing themselves. But then you saw a lot of Stewart's rhetoric seep its way into Gillespie's stump speeches and platforms. After he ended up winning the primary,
0: yeah, I mean it's you're working in a very controlled study there, so in a way, it's not fair to ask you to extrapolate out from that. But I do wonder, <laughs> uh, how do you think that it would have looked, di- but would have been different? You say at one stage, I think that um, your that your group was mainly white, straight, and Protestant. Mm-hmm. How would have that? How do you think that might have looked if you'd done the same thing in, say, somewhere like Florida, where increasing numbers of Hispanic voters appear to be moving? towards the republican party uh, sure. they, what do you think the difference would have been
1: no that's a great that's a great point so what i tried to do you know obviously i was embedded in very specific communities with very specific insights however i took some of my findings and i did a cross comparison and uh, a different analysis that other sociologists have done of different conservative groups. And I found a lot of the same similarities when it came to, for example, the five F's of conservatism, focusing on things like family, faith, firearms, a free market, and um, the armed forces. So I you know, I think when it comes to Hispanic voters, it's important to remember that. Um, Elements of of whiteness that really dominate a lot of the narratives that I came to see, um, those don't have to be espoused necessarily by by white persons. (laughs) So I think uh, some of those themes would be the same regardless of the community. Um, I do know that often, at least in the other research that I've seen looking at uh, Latino communities and, and the reason why conservatism resonates with them, is often because of some of these uh, faith-based initiatives, the way that they view family. Um, and so I, I would imagine that much of what I identified in these groups with respects to the five Fs would not necessarily be specific to those that I that I studied, even though I cannot Speak for all conservatives, right?
0: I did. One of the things that I did find really interesting and welcome, actually, is that you talk about continually wrestling with ethical issues. Obviously, you went through an institutional research board for the for the research, but it, these things constantly bothered you. And at one stage, you talk about how you uh, used Fran or Franny instead of Francesca. Uh, that you you dressed. Uh, you you describe it as in a more modest look with flats, pearl necklace, and matching pearl studs, you put your hair up, you, um, you uh, arrived at meetings with a large diet soda rather than Starbucks coffee. Uh, th- th- this clearly bothered you that you had to do these things, but you're very upfront about that fact. Tell us a little bit about why you did that uh, and, and, and the problems that it, it also raised for you, ethically speaking.
1: Definitely. I mean, I think not enough researchers talk about the role passing plays in getting research, getting people to trust you. People aren't going to trust you if you come into a situation uh, very different from them. I mean, this is like kind of psychology 101. We tend to trust people that are like us, right? Um, and in some ways, this passing process was really easy for me because I'm white and I'm straight and I'm familiar with lots of the Christian rituals that I was taking part of um but again you know in terms of like how I might dress more more uh, modestly and and I went by Fran in a way to just make it easier um you know I found that my name while not particularly difficult to pronounce it just can sometimes cause that dissonance right nobody nobody uh, has trouble pronouncing or understanding the name Fran versus versus Francesca. Um, I think the ethical boundaries, right, come into play. Like, even though I was very upfront with my voting record, you know, I, I told people I'm a sociologist. When people asked me, well, aren't sociologists crazy liberal? I would say, well, yeah, I mean, a lot of them are, right? Um, I, I find that, you know, that the ethical dilemma was less about kind of tricking but more just feeling disingenuous you know um that being said you know i would bring my children to events like the things that i talked about weren't lies i mean i told them who i was and um what i was studying but but yeah i think the ethical thing was also to um, you know on facebook there's this phenomenon where researchers call it an invisible audience so, we often friend with people or kind of take advantage that these might be very private conversations that we have in a very public forum. Um, most of the things we put online, many people don't really think all the way through who they're in conversation with. And so, I know for sure, I think over time, my presence became part of this invisible audience. And as part of the IRB process, I did not post anything onto Facebook, which makes you ultimately, while that helps protect the people whom you are um, researching and, and I obtained very explicit consent in in um, connecting with people on Facebook, it did also, I think, add to that layer of invisibility because I just I, mean, I just basically like showed up and um, didn't ever post anything or comment on anything
0: yeah although you you did have a you had a facebook page for posts on conservative news but also interestingly to see what facebook would do with that page what it would recommend for someone with the conservative profile that you'd developed for that site
1: yeah and i found the advertising in particular was very much different than the kind of stuff that i would normally see on social media. The easy part about the study was that I never had a Facebook page to begin with. So one thing that um, could have been ethically challenging, right, is like, what might my profile end up bleeding together with a more personal profile? I don't have a Facebook profile. So that made it much easier to, to make it insular and locked and have it explicitly for research. But I was very interested in the kind of promoted content that I was getting. Um, What were the stories ending up on my newsfeed? Um, The advertising that I got was very much reinforcing a lot of the same narratives that I was seeing off the ground as well.
0: I wonder as well, I mean, in terms of studies which have been done, is there a mirror image of your study for progressives, um, for people who tend not to read the Wall Street Journal, watch Fox mm. and Friends? They would read reviews of Jared Kushner's memoirs in the New York Times, but they wouldn't actually read the book, at, the book uh, itself?
1: Yeah. No, that's a great question. So as far as I know, I don't think there is a similar study that would look at how progressive audiences make sense of news and information. I am actually starting a new research project where I look at both uh, progressives and conservatives and look at how they look for information online. So I'm creating a set of prompts around fairly politically divisive concepts. And then I talk to people about these prompts and say, well, do you have an opinion on this? They tell me their opinion. It tends to skew because of the nature of the prompts, either one way or the other. These aren't like neutral sort of topics. And then I ask them to search for more information on the topic and take note of the kind of links that are returned as well as what they perceive to be um, trustworthy sources of news and information.
0: I mean, it's, it's interesting because a lot of the a lot of the book is about the links between conservatism, the far right and even white supremacists. And as, as you point out that some people have suggested a moral equivalence, uh, or immoral equivalence, if you like, but, uh, with, the, with, the, with the far left. That, mm. But you push back against that. Why, when uh, most agree that there are forces on the left and the right that seem to have little care for the norms of liberal democracy?
1: Sure. So I do that. Well, one other thing uh, really quickly, I do want to reference, there is a, a great resource called Networked Propaganda that looked at not the audience reception of it, but did look at how information flows and mapped out the entire information landscape, um, both on and offline. And that was created by Harvard researchers and, and was very data-driven in demonstrating like how information flows. So I do I do think there is a um book out there kind of that that maps the 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 information ecosystem as it were um not just specifically looking at one side or the other uh with regard to your second question (laughs) um in terms of of why do i push back on that so for me i think what i was pushing back on is two things one um this notion of the overton window so i've been hearing in sort of progressive circles that, oh, now the Overton window is happening on the right. Um, but the very notion of an Overton window was was created by um, conservative political strategists. And so I think it's important not to conflate these concepts as though they can just be applied to, to, in any one direction. And just, and
0: just for listeners, can you just uh, quickly explain what the Overton window is?
1: Oh, sure. So the Overton window is a concept that was created um, as part of a, a conservative think tank um, that was created by Joseph P. Overton. He was the strategist that created it. That was essentially a way of measuring political attitudes of the public to see what kinds of concepts um, politicians could talk about or what kind of policies that they could enact without hurting their chances of reelection. So it's sort of a way of looking at the public opinion on a concept and seeing whether or not talking about it on the trail or passing a policy about it will hurt a uh, candidate's chances of of reelection or not. Why I don't think that this I I, I think that sure there are groups and um, that that kind of transcend the boundaries of a political spectrum that are advocating for ideas and concepts that might be deemed radical. But I think it's important to differentiate between radical ideas and what I define in my book as extremism. And so I use sociologists of extremism to talk about specifically what extremism constitutes. And extremism um, very much is thinking about, sorry, hold on, let me just pull it up here because I want to make sure that I'm saying directly. So there is a sociological definition of extremism, and it ties to a researcher. Cynthia Miller Idris is the director of researcher at the... uh, She runs a polarization and extremism research lab uh, out of American University. And I use her definition of extremism, which she defines as messages or symbols that promote xenophobia through the valorization of violence, whiteness, and colonial history. And specifically, I focus on two tropes, uh, race realism and and white shift, which can also be known as like white decline or white genocide. And so in the last chapter of my book, I say, you know, a lot of times people are like, oh, well, this is kind of happening on the left. And I would say, it to the extent that there are radical ideas that might disrupt the democratic process that's not necessarily one party or the other and i think it's very important to differentiate between radicalism and extremism
0: yeah that's and that's interesting and of course those are uh, academic uh, definitions there i wonder what what do you make of the The recent politics, which have been going on, where ordinary voters looking at issues probably would not would not use those kind of definitions when they're making their decisions about uh, extremism. You look at what happened in the the more recent governor's race in Virginia uh, in 2021, where where kind of voters in the suburbs seemed particularly to be important. You look at um, election results in places like Buffalo, uh, where they kind of pushed back against what in a broad based uh, uh, description would be uh, described as as an extreme an extremist candidate
1: so i think the governor's race in virginia is actually a really important example of my work in the way in which this token phrase critical race theory was used to advance this idea or this fear within the public um, in a way that actually worked uh, for the candidate in order to be to be elected. And, and this concept of critical race theory was very much um, weaponized in a way to sow a lot of fear in suburban areas of Virginia and uh, make it seem like people who were white were under attack or that kids felt bad about being white in school. You had situations in which conservative pundits were renting homes inside of Virginia and not actually Living in them only so that they could participate in school board discussions around concepts like critical race theory or um, uh, transgender bathroom issues. And so I think that's actually a very important point in that um, people who might just be concerned about, you know, the economy or rising gas prices are getting fed a lot of information that. Creates this moral panic, and and that's exactly what I talk about um, in this book specifically.
0: And I guess I mean somewhere like Buffalo would be slightly different. It's a democratic uh, a democratic city. Mm. Uh, the issue there was was defunding the police, which is something sure. again that you do bring up in the in the final chapter of the book.
1: Sure, sure. And so I think a lot of this notion of like defund the police is predicated on this idea that without police systems, you create chaos and anarchy. And I think often uh, it's an unfortunate framing of this concept, defunding, um, because I think it fails to engage with the broader problems of, of police state or just really the the um, underlying structure in which policing was created in the United States, right? There's a lot of really great books, not mine, but those that I study, um, that talk about really the, the origins of policing uh, in the United States and the role that it played in uh, maintaining slavery, right? <laughs> it was initially put into place um, to make sure that slaves didn't run away uh, from from their owners. So I, I think I, I think it's unfortunate that we we latch onto these keywords or these phrases, and rather than kind of dig into the broader issue, um, I would also say that like oh, this notion of um, creating chaos and anarchy, uh, this this threat to to whiteness or this threat to ownership. Um, Really are kind of these dog whistles that are activated continuously, and I and I talk a lot about uh, the historical legacy of a lot of these dog whistles as well.
0: So, so finally, Francesca, you used the the, the phrase broader issues. There, I, I wonder what do you think are the broader lessons that we can learn from your study?
1: Hmm. So the thing that I would love people to walk away with from my study is understanding that. Search engines are this really dynamic, complicated space, and I think we often hear about or or kind of go to search engines with this idea that they're this helpful librarian that are going to say like, oh, hmm, this this is maybe a search that's going to lead you in a problematic way. Why don't I help you find resources that uh, can? Best match your search, but or do you mean like this? So I, I, I think it's for me. If if one thing, God taken away from my book, it would be for users to see their own role that they play in shaping the returns that they receive. And that um, rather than look to large corporations to solve this problem, we also um, be a little bit more mindful of the kinds of queries we start with.
0: Because as you say, in the book, it's not a question of how Google can fix the internet.
1: Sure. I mean, I think understanding the role google plays in in ordering information is really important but ultimately um, we don't have access to those (laughs) to those algorithms and those ideas what we have access to is understanding how search works and figuring out how we participate in that process i mean my favorite example in the book is actually not political at all when it comes to the color of the sky so you know we think that the sky is blue but the sky can be any color we want it to be if, if we're only just going to rely on returns from a search engine.
0: So the book is The Propagandist Playbook, How Conservative Elites Manipulate Search and Threaten Democracy. It's written by my guest, Francesca Tripodi and published by Yale University Press. Uh, but for now, Francesca, congratulations again and thanks for joining us on Bookstack.
1: Thanks for having me.
0: So that's it from us this week. Don't forget to check our website, AmericanPurpose.com, and to leave us a review on your podcast app. The show is produced by Damir Marusic. Do join us again next week. But for now, this is me, Richard Alder, saying thanks for listening.